thank you for taking the time to check out the Inside Myanmar podcast. If you like what you hear, we would be very grateful if you might consider rating, reviewing, and or sharing this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Inside Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if your feed is not in your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. So welcome back. My guest today is Helena, and we're going to be talking about a reasonably complicated topic. We will be discussing the relationship between politics, history, and identity on the one hand, and on the other hand, the physical architecture and environment in which those politics, that history, and that identity are actually defined. So before we actually dive into the meat of the matter, I'd like to invite Helena to introduce herself and the work that she's done so far. Thank you, Brad, for having me. Um, yes, I'm Helena Chengai-Sian, and I'm the curator and author of the project Being in Place, Longing for Heritage in Yango, Myanmar. Um, the project is based on my master thesis at the University of Stuttgart, um, Faculty of Architecture and Urban Planning. Um, and currently I'm having a exhibition in the Linden Museum in Stuttgart. Excellent. So I want to start with a pretty basic question so that we can get our bearings for this discussion. How do physical sites, physical buildings and monuments affect our understanding of our own history and our own identity? So history um, as the social or socio-historic dynamic are in some way reflected in the spatial environment. Having said that, history um, to a certain extent is displayed in the built environment and architecture and in urban planning or the urbanity. Um, in architecture, we talk about architecture parlant uh, based on Ledoux. And it, it's basically saying the speaking architecture that tries to narrate something about a place um, through its aesthetic, through its design. Um, states and later individuals would start to establish their own design in order to make their physical sites speaking for who they are. Um, in the scale of the city, the people um, are very deeply um, touched with that, um, but rather unconsciously. For most of us, um, um, that is where identity and the uh, path of history get entangled. Um, unfortunately, not always for good. Um, as the two become, the two, history and identity, uh, become representative faces of heritage and for 
uh, that the governing entity. And in the scale of the city, the people are very deeply, but rather unconsciously um, in touch with these entanglements. And that is where identity and the path of history get entangled. Unfortunately, not always for um, good, as the two become the representative faces of the uh, very um, notorious term heritage. And for governing entity, um, the heritage has become, in a way, a reigning tool to succeed to power. Um, that entanglement becomes problematic once the narrative of this heritage is guided by a specific ideology that suits only a certain group of the population when it is quite diverse. All of a sudden, the physical side, in this case the cityscape, becomes the platform and incubator to demonstrate and popularize specific narratives. And one can only become aware of how much the built environment influences the way we move, we think, we feel, and eventually supervise our sense of belonging to a certain community or not, and exclude even. In, a later pro in the later process, that physical space and the rules that are set to live in that legal framework of that city to live in triggers us quite to question about how identity as a city and certainly in a later process, that physical space and the rules that are set to live in that legal framework um, triggers us to question about our identity as a city and certainly as an individual. Um, in the case of Yangon, the holistic understanding of history is mightily provided by the, the Mara, the junta, do, and is exacerbated by the authoritarian rulership over the um, urban planning units, leading to an environment that would only share the story from the junta's point of view. Yeah. So I, I just want to immediately follow up on that. Uh, you mentioned urban planning units. Can, can you talk more about what that is? Um, like the, um, by urban planning units, I mean um, institutions that would plan and regulate the design and the infrastructural processes within the city. So I'm talking about administrations, um, city governments, etc. And in this okay. particular, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to come back to that because I, I do yeah. very much want to talk about the specifics of that. But before we do, I want to move on to history itself. And, and from that, I want to move on to heritage, because I noticed the, the way that you speak about heritage uh, and you, you seem to flag heritage as a sort of double-edged sword. So the, the first thing that I want to clarify, because a lot of people don't think about it, is that there is a chasm between what history is, the things that happened in the past, and what we think history is, what the people who grow up think is, because it's not possible for us to know everything that happened at every point in time in the mind of every person. We learn a story about history. We learn a very specific image of our history, uh, which is taught to us. And there are many parts of our history that we don't know. And our identity is typically the result of that story, this, this narrative that we are taught it's not actually based on historical fact. And we regularly have to go back to history and we regularly have to re-examine why do we believe the things that we believe about history? Are our beliefs incorrect? Did somebody try to lead us astray? Mm. And so 
I want to ask you specifically within the Burmese context, not necessarily in the in the urban planning context, but more broadly, can you think of ways in which Burmese history has been retold and reshaped uh, in the minds of people to serve a political agenda uh, and and uh, to to basically change and to warp history into something that is not accurate? Right. I think, first of all, um, the term Burmese, using it for when we speak about Myanmar, is already um, one of the um, issues we have in this discourse about identity and um, heritage in Myanmar, because um, so many people outside of Myanmar think that uh, we are all Burmese when actually we are actually a multi-ethnic country. And I think this very much term also calling all of the people Burmese reflects on the representation of uh, the cultures, the dominating culture. And um, in that sense, a lot of the minority um, groups don't feel represented in this. And, um, and this is a very recent problem, but unfortunately, um, a very um, traded problem throughout um, the history of Myanmar. So mm. having said that, um, I would like to um, talk about um, the people of Myanmar um, in this, referring to um, all peoples. Um, and yeah, certainly history is a very complex and entangled medium um, for experts and for non-experts, and especially for non-experts to understand we are drawn to, or not even just experts or non, it's just human drawn to narratives and simplifications of these complex dynamics um, that took place in the um, passing events. And this process is many aspects might be omitted or even get lost. And therefore it is important to take account and archive such complex history to provide for wholesome understanding for each individual, each generation um, that would help to understand that myth and narratives are a simplification of something greater. So indeed, um, his, historical facts need to stay um, facts and, um, and need to be aware that these facts are as equally important as the narratives um, we are drawn to. Um, from the history arises a certain identity building. Narratives and myths also help to remind ourselves that the given status quo of identity is a, actually a composition, a construct of a someone um, or a group in rulership, and that identity is very dynamic in terms of changing zeitgeist of the built environment. We human, as part of the whole system, change too. And it is only the rhythm of nature to adapt to the environment and rethink of who we are and what narrative we want to be represented by and at the same time honoring the past by acknowledging all of its shapes. And yeah. Okay. And so from that, I, I want to move forth into heritage specifically because the way you speak about heritage, it makes it obvious that her heritage is not a, a sort of one-dimensional thing. It's not a simple thing. And heritage is, is both tangible, uh, you know, physical evidence of the past itself and, and overwhelmingly is intangible. It's culture, it's language, it's practice, it's belief, it's historiography, it's identity, it's all of these things wrapped into one. 
And correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be saying that heritage is something that governments attempt to uh, take control of and uh, almost like a story that they're trying to manipulate and they're trying to change in order to achieve their personal goals vis-a-vis the population rather than the population itself taking uh, charge of its own heritage. So I just I just want to hear what your thoughts are on the issue of heritage and, and how you perceive heritage within this context. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think I'm you're, you're right when we are talking about the context of Myanmar, about that term and my perception of it. But I think heritage in itself is um, a treasure and and everyone knows about it. So um, and it is very much um, it is it moves people heritage, right? And um, whoever gets to speak about heritage, whoever gets to decide what is heritage is in power. So in authoritarian um, governances, it is no surprise that um, these entities um, take over that that uh, very sentimental um, and fundamental um, term of heritage and um, capture it for their for their needs, right? So um, for, I think for most, uh, according to my um, research, heritage in Myanmar um, is, is very heavy. It's a very heavy topic to talk about because there are so many, um, so many layers that have not been discussed yet and um, represented yet. And so, um, for now, for the status quo, heritage is um, instrumentalized um, for the governing entity, the Damara in this case, the junta, to um, to educate the people about what is where they come from, who they are, and that is very um, much though through the lenses of um, their point of view of their um, of their ideology. So. Um, yes, indeed, heritage is a powerful tool, and one has to be very careful um, using it. Fair enough. And when we talk about the 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 junta, the damada, we we know about some of the more overt ways that they've tried to manipulate heritage. Like we understand the the reeducation of the people to convince them that the Tamador are the, the guarantors and the protectors of the state and of the people and that they are guiding the people to a better place and to democracy and they're at the vanguard of progress and the way that they've co-opted uh, Buddhism as well and, and, and forced people to learn those elements of Buddhist scripture which emphasize um, accepting fate and accepting authority and piety and duty without emphasizing those elements of the scriptures that would lead people to start questioning the legitimacy of a regime that wantonly murders civilians. But in terms of your field, let's talk about the relationship the junta have historically had to the physical environment and, and to the to the sites that have historical and heritage significance. What, what, what have they been doing in the last 60 years? Yeah, I guess when in a society... Um, displaying history as it is uh, with all the um, saddening and um, 
cheerful moments of that history um, doesn't play a major role, then um, certain sides that might have become iconic to these events um, become quite insignificant and even invisible. And this is what one can observe in Myanmar. Um, in my research, I found that the valuation of historical sites that correspond to their ideology, the ideology of the junta, are taken care of and even contributed to within the process of merit-making, again, the, um, using Buddhism um, as their religion. Um, so it is to the stakeholders um, of power how historical and eventually these heritage sites um, are being treated. Um, and so far in the past 60 years, um, in Myanmar, history is filtered through the lens of the junta and not all sides with respect to the ethnic groups are treated equally. The policy on heritage protection or these really eventful sites um, are still old fashioned and not applicable to the contemporary age in which Myanmar after all has got. Um, so talking about old fashioned to the status quo of heritage sites um, or historical sites, um, they are considered heritage and are protected by the city government and also listed. But all these buildings um, or all the listed buildings consist of colonial buildings and religious um, structures. And other categories of buildings are neglected or even demolished. Um, there are rarely signs of contextualizing what happened in the past, what happened in the history. Um, for example, the Yangon downtown prison that was demolished in 1985 um, is a site of the pro-democracy resistance um, or the reconciliation with the student union for the Yangon University Student Union building of 1962. In that matter, the junta chose to rebuild the historic building in 2017 without acknowledging and honoring the fallen and unarmed students that have been killed by the junta during the peaceful march, again, of uh, 1962. And, and there is this, this very consistent resilience from the junta to not cope with the past and rather to either rewrite it, abolish it, um, like we have seen with the prison um, and rebranding it um, in their own rhetoric, in their own terms. And that's, that's currently the status quo. But after the opening um, in Myanmar, um, when I say opening, I'm referring to the year of 2011, when Myanmar started opening and going on the road of democracy, um, a year later, so in 2012, fortunately, the Yangon Heritage Trust was found, and they are one entity in this whole um, in this whole discourse about heritage and um, uh, belonging. Um, who actually try to research and um, advocate modernizing the perception of heritage. And fortunately, uh, the Yangon Heritage Trust was found in 2012. Um, they try to advocate and modernize the perception of heritage and research about historical sites beyond these two categories of colonial buildings and religious structures in Yangon. 
therefore adding more historical knowledge is needed and in that understanding even counter narratives can help and not only help are necessary to achieve a greater perspective of that place the people live in in this case Yangon and converse about the richness of their history that is woven within the urban fabric of Yangon and I want to continue on that because what's very interesting is that you you do mention that these these particular types of buildings, in particular Buddhist religious buildings, are more likely to be heritage listed. Although, one one example that I do want to before I before I talk about the religious buildings, one example that I I do want to mention is the secretariat, because mm. the secretariat's been very um, sort of strange. It's it's largely been under perpetual uh, sort of external renovation, as a lot of large old buildings are, that's not unusual, but it was kept closed for a very long time. It was opened on Martyr's Day once a year, and that was about it. And mm -hmm. now they're in a position where they've sold a lot of real estate within the Secretariat to private enterprises, some of them, you know, Western uh, fast food companies, for example. And they have uh, heavily commercialized the Secretariat even though the secretariat is a building that it appears even the junta have an understanding of the significance of and have a respect for so is there is there some sort of internal clash or a cognitive dissonance happening with the junta where they can view a site as being intrinsically important to the foundation of the country and obviously this is where general alsan was murdered and and much of his cabinet uh, while simultaneously also not being willing to support it pay for it upkeep it and and being willing to commercialize it and sell it off like what's happening there i think actually it's already happening right um yeah they did it years ago yeah exactly so um i don't know where you're like they do have this attitude to like invest but your question actually goes to like why they can't keep it as a heritage site and like leave it more to like a museum kind of state or yeah, that, that would largely be it, yeah. Talking about the secretary, um, it is very contested um, due to its um, history. And certainly um, the junta, that is how it is constituted today, has not taken part of that history, right? It was Ansan who founded them but um, and who got assassinated in this building. Um, but... When, when one looks at or juxtapose these two um, narratives, um, the one talking about this building as this fundamental important building that um, survive all the eras, all the reigning eras. Um, and on the other side, it is the house where, um, uh, yeah, the Demodos um, current narrative just doesn't fit, right? And so it is one when when you see it that way, um, one can understand uh, its neglect um, from the junta uh, towards that building. And so for them, it is very easy to just um, take out all the sentimental feelings about this building that most of the people in Myanmar have about that side, and just commercialize it and uh, make something profitable out of it in terms of. Um, commerce. And um, I think uh, I can just assume, right? Um, but that must like, 
it is just um, not not part of their history, or they they don't want to be related to it. And um, their strongest argument is to say this is a remnant of the colonial era. But yeah, forgetting about that, this was uh, the parliament right after independence, and it is very much um, woven in in the Myanmar history. And this is just an example of how they treat um, these historical sites. Um, I mean, the junta. Fair enough. And I want to circle back uh, to to the colonial heritage specifically. But first, I want to move to the religious heritage because this is something that that I also find very perplexing. The junta appear to be in two minds about these things. Because on the one hand, you have all of these temples that are being put up across the country, particularly when things are not going well for the junta, they tend to invest heavily in building temples because merit making in their mind is going to bring them success. But at the same time, uh, when we look at Bagan, Bagan has incalculable heritage value Mm -hmm. and when I visited, uh, this would have been quite a few years back, or maybe maybe four or so years back, the fee that was being paid was being given about 90% to the, the union government. And of the remaining 10%, uh, if I remember correctly, something in the order of like 8% of that 10% was being given to the company that handles the transactions. So only some some 2% of the actual fee was being spent on rebuilding uh, the site. And and due to the successive earthquakes in Bagan, mm-hmm. the, the site is, uh, my understanding is it's either threatened uh, by UNESCO as being taken off the, the heritage list, or it may already have happened. I can't r- remember which it, this is. Uh, simultaneously, we look at uh, if I remember correctly, General uh, Tan Shui, who covered a famous white um, pagoda in gold mm. uh, because he believed that that would bring him luck. And and the restoration work that was already underway uh, to, to return it to its original white facade was a very mm. costly enterprise, but it, it was specifically famous for being a, a white uh, pagoda. We even had reports, uh, 2021, but following the coup, that gold uh, plates were being removed from Shwedagon itself. And we definitely had images mm-hmm. of soldiers walking out of Shwedagon carrying um, boxes of valuables or cash. Uh, mm-hmm. So they definitely extracted significant value from Shwedagon, despite its clear significance to Buddhists. So on the one hand, it seems that they love Buddhism and they love to patronize and invest in Buddhism by building all of these temples. But on the other hand, they seem to also want to desecrate these temples and extract as much personal financial value from them as they can. Once again, what is going on with this? Like, what, what is the attitude of the junta to Buddhist heritage here? <laughs> I think I think we're just talking about a governance without moral, maybe. And Buddhism was useful as long as it was useful to their reigning, and um, and all that you've said is just very, um, very evident to, um, a governance without moral. And so, um, it doesn't surprise me that they would cross borders 
they would cross the red line basically um, um, for their own benefit. So um, when, so even when I said um, colonial buildings and religious structures are under protection, it is on paper said, but de facto it doesn't happen, right? Um, de facto, it is what it is, and um, it is constantly changing um, to their tone, to the uh, speed of their tone, and it is it is not very foreseeable for others to um, or to predict what's going to happen next, um, because it's it's like the junta is ruthless. You know, I talk a lot about history and how we derive from the history to the now and look uh, towards the future. And um, and there's this logic about it, right? But when you're ruthless, I think you can allow yourself to, to do whatever you want. You're more or less boundless. And, um, and that becomes very dangerous when you are actually a government of a country. And um, yeah, I, I just think that um, the roots are missing here um, within the ranks of the junta. Fair enough. So let's circle back then to the colonial history because this this one is is always going to be very contentious. And I'm curious to know not only how the junta relates to colonial heritage, uh, and certainly we see, especially in downtown Yangon, we see a lot of colonial era uh, buildings. I, I can't say for certain because I don't know the history of them, but the high court, um, the uh, the town hall, uh, definitely mm. the secretariat, a lot of these buildings have a very strong colonial appearance. I, I'm not sure whether they genuinely are colonial buildings or not, but they definitely look to be colonial buildings. And there hasn't really been, to my mind, any attempt to remove that, that colonial edifice. So what is the relationship that the junta have to the, to the physical colonial heritage? And what is the relationship that the Myanmar people have to the colonial heritage as well? Because certainly it would be a very painful memory for them, but I could imagine that in the light of the junta, they might say, uh, well, yeah, painful memory, but better times because at least we didn't have you know, the junta coming into houses and murdering people. So what's the relationship there? Yeah. Um... I think for the junta, um, history doesn't, like I already said, um, doesn't play a major role. It's more about the economy and um, what all these restorations would cost. And obviously, um, they they advertise uh, when they want to demolish uh, these colonial buildings um, under the statement of saying, oh, yeah, this is a remnant of the colonial era. Um, but then it's not um, genuinely preceded, right? So you don't see, um, you like, it's very ambivalent. The whole spectrum of um, protecting these buildings or not. Um, and I find this discourse very, um, very dynamic. And for me now, very difficult to um, respond. I just can assume uh, my observations of um yeah so um i think really um the junta 
care, cared about. There, and also we, when we talk about the junta, there's not just like one um, leader that has been um, reigning the whole uh, 60 years, right? There has been change. So with every government, with every period, I think there are slight differences um, towards the attitude of how to deal and how to cope with these colonial buildings. Um, and so there it varies. Um, and at the end, they they uh, basically neglected Yangon as this very um, historical uh, city and left and built their own um, city. So um, that is quite a final solution for them how to deal with it, just to um, sort of erase it by neglecting the, um, the architecture in Yangon. Um, and for the people in Myanmar, I I felt like they they like it's very much um, part of their history, and there are voices who say no, this is a remnant of the colonial era. Um, but at the same time, um, me as a as a architect and urban planner, I find these sites very important because um, no matter what story they tell, um, they should be considered and they should be included in the history and demolishing them won't make the past look better or um, otherwise. So when we talk about Myanmar in terms of historical sites, um, it is very... um, it is very tricky for me to um, talk about it because, again, um, what is represented is mainly the colonialism and um, the monoculture of the Burmese culture, um, when in reality, again, Myanmar is a multi-ethnic country and most of what is preserved and of heritage side preserved are related to um, the Burmese culture. so having said that, historical sites are more or less concerning the Burmese-related culture and not the other ethnic cultures. Um, in that matter, um, it's no surprise that historical sites are not even um, known or certain traditions are not even uh, passed on because of the lack of such um, knowledge and institutions who would care about these issues. Um, therefore, I hope I, I kind of like draw the picture of this very, um, this almost mosaic-like um, um, remembrance of uh, historical sites um, in Myanmar. So I can only say that the relationship um, for most people um, towards these historical sites is rather interrupted and in its best case, fragmented. Um, It is more likely that older generations are aware of these um, historical sites um, as they have witnessed these historic events. But for the generation that is still in school, it is rather difficult as the children are being indoctrinated by the history books of the junta. And to put it in a nutshell, historic sites are very contested, and this is differently perceived depending on which people you actually ask in Myanmar. Mm. And so, 
it's does that make sense or it absolutely it... does it absolutely does i'm trying to mull over some of the things that you've just said because i'm trying to get into the mindset of of the junta with with regard to to these sites because from my perspective it seems almost schizophrenic it's it doesn't seem to have internal consistency and when you the way you express it like saying that there's a focus on commercialization and extracting value from sites it's it just sort of makes me realize that the the junta does not correct me if is is this basically what you're saying the junta does not actually care about any sites but on the off chance that the people care about a site the junta will either try to uh, gain money from that site or they will try to destroy that site not because they care about it but because they know the people care about it and this is their way of trying to entrench their power and authority is, is that an accurate yeah yeah exactly yeah? yeah yeah that's what's happening yeah it's it, it's fascinating because we have examples in history of regimes that have inherited countries with extensive historical archaeological uh, heritage. Uh, an example that comes to mind is Iran, previously Persia, and mm. uh, under uh, one of the the I think it was the Shah, they went through an era of extreme iconoclasm and destroying everything but it wasn't because it's significant to the people and we must control the people it was because of this mentality that everything that is old is bad and we mm. must destroy what is old so that we can build a new nation i know china went through uh, a period like this after the the communist revolution although they they stopped doing that thankfully uh it well at least when it comes to sort of Han Chinese culture, not so much when it comes to non-Han Chinese culture. Um, but what you seem to be saying is that in the Myanmar context, it's not about this, we must rebuild the nation and therefore we must destroy the heritage that holds us in the past. They don't care. It seems to be what you're saying. They, they just don't care one way or the other about the buildings. All they care about is controlling how people see uh, the junta and how people think of Myanmar identity and, and history. Exactly. It's all their means are um, done with the objective of uh, staying in power, whatever it takes. I mean, that is, it, it conforms obviously to, to what we know about these people, but every single time you're confronted with the realization that people exist who only care about the preservation of their own power, it, it's just a very sobering realization. Sure. Um, yeah, and and so and I and I think I think you're very uh, justified in also pointing out that much of our discourse here is is focused on uh, Bama heritage. Uh, obviously, Mandalay and Yangon are two of the the most important cities in uh, in Myanmar from a historical perspective. So is Bagan. Uh, all mm -hmm. of these are in the uh, now Bama dominated heartland. But uh, of course, we have a lot of sites that fall outside of that uh, scope. So how ha, has there been a, a marked difference in the way that Bama and non-Bama sites have been treated under the junta? So to my knowledge, I just find it very um, 
very difficult to find um, literature about the preservation of the Qin culture or the Qin culture um, under the governance of the junta. So, um, and in contrary, um, from the news I have heard is that um, crosses that are um, put on the streets in the Qin region are being knocked down. And um, that was, these were incidents from 10 years ago. And um, instead, um, Buddha sculptures were um, placed. And so I think that is the reason why there is, or me not finding um, literature, much literature about um, most of the ethnic cultures is, and, and their history with their historical sides is because of that. It's just not, it's just has not been cared of. And the ethnic groups have been busy with um, surviving. So um, there was no one recording or archiving such um, cultural treasures. And, and, and certainly not the junta would do that for them. So it is, um, yeah, it, it, it is almost, um, forgotten or invisible at least and just just for the sake of those in the audience who might not be aware uh, i just want to point out that chinka chin shan karen and kareni states are overwhelmingly christian populations whereas yeah, exactly. the the tamado the junta and basically the the infrastructure of the state uh, is overwhelmingly buddhist and is deeply interwoven with with Buddhism and and there is there is a very long standing conflict. So it's it it is not just an inter ethnic conflict. It's an inter religious conflict. There, there, there are many layers here. So it's um it's not surprising, sadly, to hear that that Christian crosses uh, would be deliberately uh, taken down and replaced with with Buddhist iconography. It's um that's that seems very very typical for the military. And for their approach, although, again, th this is a thing. Coming to the issue of monetization, um, mm. I, I don't know how you feel about the Rakhine. Whether you whether you perceive them to be completely separate from the Bama as an ethnic group, or whether you see them as a sort of kindred ethnic group to the Bama. But um, Miao Wu is obviously a very important historic site, but. My understanding is it's also, uh, when it's stable, a popular tourist attraction that uh, that draws in uh, quite a bit of revenue. So, is there once again this mentality of, well, we don't like the 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 ethnic minorities, but if their sites have any value as far as tourism revenue is concerned, uh, then whatever we're we're happy to support that and we're happy to allow that to to exist. Would that would that be fair? Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, um, yeah, it's it's like you you sell the culture, you know, and um, and everything that is um, for sale that's good and in the interest of the junta, um, mm. maybe harshly said, but um, what it de facto is happening happening. Mm. Absolutely, and so. With with that in mind, so now now that we have a slightly clearer understanding of the motivations uh, of the junta, this is this is a very difficult question to to answer, uh, and I don't think anyone will be able to give a completely accurate answer to this. But I, I very much welcome 
your interpretation. To what extent has the military succeeded in changing, um, not changing history, but changing Myanmar's collective understanding of its history? Yeah. I think really rebranding and filtering the historical background of certain sites and turn them into their narrative is a classic um, manner by the junta. Um, observing the built environment, um, in this case, the city of Yangon, one can easily tell what is kept in protection and what is neglected by by the decaying facades of these buildings in Yangon. Um, and, and it is amazing to see that these buildings are the tokens or the witnesses of the history and how, how fearful they can become to that narrative that in so far that the junta would actually um, move big efforts to, um, yeah, get rid of them. Um, so... I think going by this act of appreciation, one could easily conclude that the junta has succeeded um, in schools pedagogically to rewrite history and make use of their power to constitute what the roots of the people are supposed to be, especially abusing the, uh, as we already discussed, the depths of uh, spirituality by abducting Buddhism and instrumentalizing it for their ideology is deeply saddening. Um, but this is only the one and official side of the dime. Um, during my research, while talking to the witnesses of the political events, I was assured that the remnants of, um, th that would connect the people and their history is kept in their memories. It is them, the people, who tell the narrative of the nation, actually. Um, thanks to these witnesses, the history in its complexity um, is captured. Even if it's not visible or visibly seen in the cityscape, the complexity is passed on orally from generation to generation. Uh, on this, the junta has no. On this, the junta has no. No power on what the people have in their mind, and will pass on. And so, in that term, like seeing it from this angle, the junta has not completely succeeded um, to mute the people. To me, the junta has not really um, changed the narrative because, like I said, it is more about their official power they, they use in order to manipulate the people. But in the minds of the people, many either are consciously aware of the past or can only assume that, um, that the, the, the chain of history is a bit off um, when the junta tells the story, and that the spirit of the resilient civilians um, demonstrating for justice and freedom is very embedded in the Myanmar people, which can be seen again these days in the CDM movements. Um, for every generation, you can see that no matter what government, the people, um, the civic engagement um, is, is an unrest when, when it comes to their freedom. In the case of Myanmar, 
storytelling and the shared word are still vital. Um, so this this aspect of that intangible heritage, right, is still vital um, to the protection of their own history and identity um, that will hopefully never lose its virtue. And I'm sure that the junta will never touch that part because it is a very much the mind, you know, um, is so much stronger than uh, everything outside of the body. And so um, the junta can only go to a certain extent. And as long as we share these stories, as long as we um, witness things and tell them, I think um, this is evidence that the junta has not succeeded. And so you talk about the the many different facets and the many different dimensions and layers that there are to history and tangible history tangible heritage the things that we can touch that physically connect us to the past are very important but they only form part of the overall heritage so i just want to get your assessment let's say the junta went on an absolute tear and decided to destroy anything from the colonial era, everything that is not from their version of Myanmar culture, which is to say military worshipping, um, very much uh, obedient Buddhist Bama-centered. If they just destroyed all of this, what would the impact be for the people of Myanmar going forward? It's like a very final state you describe. Mm. Um, I don't know what, I mean, civil war we already have. <laughs> um, what is the next step? We have revolutions. Um, and I'm saying it in a way that um, I, I can't even imagine, right? So mm. I... I'd rather not um, elaborate on this um, with the hope that this case will never um, take place. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So then, so then, moving to the opposite of that. Um, so, what what is it in your view that that can be done uh, that is that is feasible, and what is it that should be done to preserve history and to preserve? Uh, heritage like are you of the view that all things that have a connection uh to the past have a significant connection to the past should ipso facto be protected and should be preserved and should be heritage listed and should be maintained uh unchanged as as a sort of museum or as a shrine to the past or do you do you take a more sort of moderated view of this what, what do you think it is that we should be doing in general to preserve this yeah, so coming from the architectural angle, I, I, I'm very much against uh, open museums um, or making, not not uh, per se open museums, but um, making a city or a village become an open museum where the inhabitants don't have privacy because they're part of the exhibition, right? Mm. Um, I hope this is, uh, this would be the worst case scenario for uh, heritage or historical sites in Myanmar happening. Um, for me, historical sites are the images you find in history books, right? Um, that makes history more tangible. And um, 
And this is how I see the city or, um, I mean, we talk about Yangon. So this is how I see these um, iconic buildings um, that that actually, without telling, they are telling um, a story. And I, I just think that historical sites can be preserved in various ways. Um, there are precedent cases studied worldwide. Um, we as a nation um, need to find our own way then and find a consensus about how. Historical sites are usually contested due to the complex entanglement of feelings and its various point of views. Um, the importance is to openly speak about it and not exclude any group of the society. It demands discussion, negotiation. It is a certainly a long process that eventually lead to how we would understand heritage or these um, preservation of these sites and where we want to go as a nation that might eventually lead to a common narrative. That would be the ideal situation, having a common narrative that is shared by all, founded on the facts of history. And therefore, I think what is much needed in Yangon is a reformation of the legal framework with respect to identifying and protecting historical sites. And so that that sort of moves me quite neatly into into the final sort of question that I that I want to pose on this, and that is, what can be done by the people themselves? I mean, you say that the 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 people have to find their way. Every nation has to find its own way and a solution that is appropriate for that culture and that context. Uh, but what is it you think that that the Myanmar people can be doing? Or is it is it something that would be different in every part of Myanmar, in every culture of Myanmar, in order to reclaim their identity and their heritage and their understanding of their history from uh, the, the Tamador, from the junta? And if and when uh, this, this war ends and the military are, are once and for all removed from power, what would you also like to see legislated by a new civilian government? Uh, to to help ensure that the people can reconnect with their heritage and their identity. Yeah, what what like immediately comes into my mind is that Myanmar has been physically assaulted by the British, Japanese, and later and also today the junta. Um, and what is noticeable is the resilience of the people and. Um, and right after uh, the independence, I would like to mention the Binlong Agreement um, of 1947 that has been this paper um, and also law-binding paper that would declare sovereignty to the ethnic minorities, to, the ter to their territories. And there was a moment in Myanmar's history that, that might be forgotten but mostly neglected and i hope that this paper finds its revival in the future with the new government um and and acknowledging that all the people living on the soil of myanmar um are wholesome and um calling for equality and um respecting 
um, their cultural treasures. And uh, the people of Myanmar need to recognize their sovereign existence. This includes that in the built environment, including the traditions that might not be in tangible, um, are cared for. Um, these I've been talking a lot about narratives, but I think this is because so much was in the past transmitted through narratives and and still is today um, that these orally transmitted knowledge basically has made Myanmar people become these knowledge co-producers, right, about their history. And that has to be very much carefully treated and also like passed on um, because this is the main resource of the people um, in Myanmar um, to make place for themselves. And um, at the end, being in place and have the sense of belonging, um, despite the ignorance, neglect and assault on their physical sites or in their context. Um, maybe in the case of Myanmar, many other countries which had to endure such governance, um, the last thing remaining are the narratives, right? Um, the people as the vassal of, um, of, of history. Um, in that manner, I like to see the people um, stop here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. The establishment of an archive um, for me gains a mate. Oh no, stop here. I think for everyone it is important. Yeah. The establishment of an archive gains a major significance. If the people respect and acknowledge their past and, and guard their treasures, of their memories and share them with each other the way to, in order to get to a public memory and a common narrative. Um, this is how, in my perspective, um, the people of Myanmar reclaim their space. So my encouragement goes to all the brave witnesses within the country and out to the Myanmar diaspora internationally to not stop sharing their testimonies and collecting the brave narratives of what's happening in Myanmar that would lead Myanmar one day to freedom and most importantly, give to all Myanmar people a sense of belonging. Mm. No, and I, and I think that's, that's quite comprehensive. And so as is our custom here, just before we finish up, I want to invite you just to share any thoughts that you might have, any lasting impression that you want to leave the audience with, with regard to this topic and the, the work that you do. I, we don't, often discuss this sort of uh, content. I don't think the role of architecture in politics is something that many people really think about or focus on, despite the fact that it has such an important role to play and despite the fact that it has such a long and storied history in every continent. Mm. So whatever thoughts you think the audience should walk away considering and mulling over and trying to apply to their lives going forward, I'd appreciate if you could... Uh, share with us yeah first of all thank you brad for uh this interview i just hope that the entanglement between the daily happenings and in this world in our lives and in the spaces where we live that we share are built 
with a certain intention. And I encourage us to be part of that built environment and to have an eye on how certain spaces are developed or not developed and how certain places are treated. Because all this will go into our history and it is to us to um, become an active or a passive citizen and to watch out for what's happening in our environment. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel and, in fact, are. Thankfully, through our nonprofit organization, Better Burma, we are able to ensure that all donations successfully reach their intended target. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our fund, which is 100% directed towards supporting the movement. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, 
Oh, bayaran anda, bayaran anda, bayaran anda, bayaran anda, bayaran anda, bayaran anda.